topic of our Dhamma talk this evening is uh, Wisdom Part 2 and uh, this much doesn't uh, give you uh, that much in terms of what we're really going to talk about and uh, the subtitle is going to be The Insight Knowledges and uh, Their Benefits and so and the emphasis will be especially on the benefits to be gained from the practice. And obviously it goes without saying that these benefits can be gained only by those who actually practice. And no work, no benefits. Now, well, it is like this. <laughs> and so, so to reconnect to our Dhamma talk, Wisdom Part One, back then we described a number of aspects connected with wisdom. We mentioned various synonyms for it, also the definition for it, and maybe just to repeat the definition of wisdom. Namely, it has the characteristic of penetrating objects according to their intrinsic nature or essential nature. And the function of wisdom is to illuminate the objective field and its manifestation is as non-bewilderment or non-delusion and wise attention or unification of the mind, in other words, concentration, are its two proximate causes. Now, when we speak of wisdom, of course, we do not mean ordinary worldly wisdom, let's say, wisdom that is based on on tradition or wisdom of the farmers in predicting predicting the weather and so on and so forth. But rather, we by wisdom we mean intuitive wisdom, wisdom that arises out of meditation practice. Now. What we are going to talk about is, in essence, nothing other than the path of purification. And this is the title that Acharya Buddhaghosa has chosen for his so important work, the Visuddhi Magga. So each and every one of us here is on that path of purification. And so, so it is a gradual path of purifying oneself, and to be more specific, of purifying the mind of certain aspects that are not conducive to wisdom and that are not conducive to happiness. Now, 
this path of Vatnaya purification has been you know, described in the Visuddhimagga itself. It uh, is also, um, or an outline, you know, can also be found in you know, the path of Vatnaya discrimination to some extent, maybe not uh, in the same way, but um, mentioning the same you know, insight knowledges. And you know, then, in the Abhidhamata Sangha, namely the manual of Fatna, the Abhidhamma, which is a key work, a fundamental work for an understanding of Fatna, the Abhidhamma, where the Abhidhamata Sangha also you know, mentions very nicely about the development that takes place in the meditation practice. Now, as uh, a further, um, as further point, as further reference, certain points for you know, the existence of a very definite certain path, we have certain you know, the combined experiences of not just uh, hundreds or thousands of meditators, but rather of certain you know, ten thousands, of hundred thousands, of millions of certain you know, meditators in the course of certain you know, human history. And certainly so there have been meditators at the time of the Buddha who practiced and who then have been on this path of purification. And certainly there are meditators after the time of the Buddha. There are meditators right now all over the world. And there will be meditators in the future who will be doing the same kind of practice and certainly will be having similar results. And so this certain path of purification is certain a path that certain describes some very fundamental development that takes place when one is willing to practice mindfulness as described by the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta and many other discourses here and there. Now, with uh, the tremendous advance of uh, modern uh, sciences, uh, especially neurosciences, this uh, uh, path, uh, as described in uh, the Visuddhimagga, uh, uh, has been verified uh, by uh, researchers uh, such as uh, Dr. Daniel Brown and uh, Dr. Jack Engler, and uh, then lately especially my professor uh, Richard Zetner Davidson, who is one of the leading neuroscientists um, from Wisconsin University. Now, one might still say, well, I don't believe all of this, and 
Satna, but the ultimate you know, proof you know, for the existence of Satna, such a path really lies in one's own you know, meditation practice. So if one doesn't Satna believe at Satna the outset, never mind, you know, just uh, if there's a willingness you know, to you know, just you know, follow instructions to be you know, mindful you know, from moment to moment, you know, then you know, quite naturally you know, things Satna will you know, develop and certain major or changes will occur over time and gradually a meditator will get the point that things are happening in a certain um, well in a certain way now the the path of purification as outlined by um, elder Buddhaghosa or Acharya Buddhaghosa consists of seven major stages and those are known as purifications. And those seven purifications are the purification of virtue, sila, visuddhi. In other words, the first step towards certain purification is that certain one subjects oneself to an ethical code of certain virtue and lives according to this. So this satna already brings about certain changes. Then we have purification of mind, which in the Pali scriptural language is known as citta visuddhi, and this satna purification takes place when concentration arises, and satna the concentration in turn will help to suppress the main, the five hindrances. So with the five hindrances suppressed already, the mind certainly will be somewhat certainly purified. Obviously not totally, but to some degree. Now, the next Satna purification is Satna, the purification of you, Deity Visuddhi in the Pali scriptural language, and so we will go into this or talk about this in a, uh, in a couple of moments. Uh, this in the and then you know, this is followed you know, by you know, the purification by overcoming doubt, Kankavitarana Dwisudi in the Pali scriptural language. And certainly here you know, what is meant is doubts about you know, the entity that makes all everything happen in the world and certain within you know, oneself you know, these uh, may exist and you know, through careful observation of what is actually going on in the body and in the mind a meditator you know, then you know, gets to see you know, reality and with this the doubts are overcome. And then we have Fatna, the purification by knowledge and uh, vision of what is path and not path, Magga Maganyana Dasana Visuddhi in the Pali scriptural language. And certainly this will be explained in goodness uh, to some extent later on. And then we have as number six the purification by knowledge and vision of the way, Patipada Nyanyana Dasana Visuddhi, which certainly covers 
you know, the uh, a big chunk or quite a number of uh, insight knowledges you know, starting you know, from the mature you know, face of the you know, knowledge of the fast arising passing away formations all the way up to conformity knowledge and the last one is purification by knowledge and vision jnana dasna visuddhi in the Pali scriptural language which is the knowledge of the four supreme the supreme paths so or super mundane paths so just this much for general knowledge so then you are somewhat familiar or that at least you've heard about these purifications and if some further interest is there you might consider to read up in the Visuddhimagga after your retreat. Now all of you have come to this retreat. At the outset of the retreat, we've started with the taking of the precepts and then with an explanation of the basic meditation instructions. And part of those instructions included things such as restraint of the senses. So. And, and certain, then when a meditator takes certain all of the meditation instructions, restraint of the senses, doing all activities slowly to heart, then sooner or later things certainly start moving. And a meditator after a while then might start to might realize intuitively that certainly there are in the end only physical and mental formations occurring. So in what we consider to be um, let's say Sue or Mac or whatever your name that might certainly be and certainly so there's a sense of a being there a sense of a personality there so upon a closer analysis contemplative or meditative analysis of what is actually going on in this or is actually going on then we find there are just physical and mental formations taking place so just mind and matter and that's all now this particular understanding then is already a benefit. A benefit for a meditator because it helps a meditator to at least temporarily be purified of the wrong view of a permanent self. And this certainly then helps to shape or redirect certainly the mind in a certain way. 
So what we find is there just uh, you know, physical phenomena you know, such as the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, hardness, tension, stiffness, you know, heat, cold, you know, vibrations, various you know, bodily movements, uh, you know, and certainly you know, then various mental states or mental objects you know, such as you know, thoughts and images and certain you know, joy and happiness and restlessness and sloth and torpor and skeptical doubt and so on and so forth. And so when we're deeply observing or deeply absorbed in the observation of predominant objects, then we realize there is at least at times no sense of self. And so that makes Satna then already a big difference. Now another major benefit that comes with this particular insight knowledge is the understanding of the interdependence. And interdependence in the sense that physical phenomena are dependent on mental phenomena and mental phenomena in turn are dependent on physical phenomena. So if you were to possess only a body, then you know, would you get very far? <laughs> Not really. Or if you were to possess only a mind you know, that can think and that can have various in, you know, volitions and or in, intentions, etc., you know, but you don't have a body, then you know, would that certainly help you to manage life? Not really. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so the interdependence of certain physical and certain mental formations is certain another direct certain benefit that a meditator might gain you know, from or gain from the practice within just a couple of days, and other benefits that are not necessarily reported in the Visuddhimagga but that are pretty obvious and I'm saying this based on interviewing yogis for quite a number of years now and so some of those benefits are that meditators start to gain some clarity about what kind of mental state um, or, or gaining some clarity that certain mental states are you know, to the benefit of the of a meditator and others are not really to his or her benefit. And then you know, sooner or later a meditator might get the point that those uh, you know, mental states that are you know, beneficial to oneself are the wholesome you know, mental states, the so-called kusalatna jetasika in the Pali scriptural language. And the other ones are you know, the unwholesome ones, Akusala Jetasika. Now, the distinction between wholesome and unwholesome you know, mental states, do you think this is certainly uh, relevant or irrelevant? Huh? What? You're saying irrelevant? No? Relevant. Yeah, very relevant. So, you know, if you want to 
uh, spend your life uh, mostly on the happy side, then you want to know more about wholesome mental states because in the end, when there's purity of mind, this will conduce to your happiness, to your well-being, to um, also to the arising of wisdom, etc. Now, yet another practical benefit that is also not directly or specifically mentioned in the Visuddhimagga is that meditators start to discover intentions. So just the existence of intentions. So you might be, let's say, you might be standing at the buffet and in line for, ready for lunch, waiting for your turn to come up, and you see all the delicious food there, prepared by Surya and Surya Tenzo and Chris Tenzo and, uh, and, and then your eyes are bigger than your stomach and then you can't wait until your turn comes up and so and then you might at such a point notice how your mind is eager to reach for the ladle and then scoop some food and put it on your plate. And so, and so with this satna then gradually with mindfulness practice from moment to moment gradually meditators discover that discover the existence of intentions and so then one notices over time that certain activities are preceded by intentions, mental intentions. And those could be bodily activities as well as verbal activities. And so the discovery of intentions might be extremely helpful to a meditator because it will give him or her a freedom from impulsive behavior which is based on not recognizing the intentions. So if one happens to be young and certainly very energetic, full of creative ideas, then one might want to do so many things and say so many things, whether wholesome or unwholesome is not really the point, and certainly so easily one might then do something impulsively and later on it turns out to be the wrong thing. So these are some of the benefits that a meditator may gain already within just a couple of days of meditation practice. When you're actually doing the practice, you might not even realize that those benefits have accrued for you. Now, um, obviously you're not going to get stuck at this certain point. You will move ahead in your practice by continuously being mindful of whatever predominant object comes up. And with this certain then sooner or later you realize that those certain same physical and mental formations are somewhat connected. 
and so they are connected by the cause and effect. So let's say you see the delicious food and then a desire arises to take plenty of a particular of your most favorite dish. Or you might suddenly discover that maybe Oh, let me see what's uh, you might suddenly hear uh, some uh, cars uh, noisy noisy cars uh, very loud cars you know, trucks driving by and suddenly then you might suddenly get upset in the mind over uh, the noise is this really necessary that they make such a uh, so much noise and so then we have a connection between the hearing of uh, you know, the sound or hearing the sound of the truck trucks driving by and suddenly then the aversion towards suddenly those so-called noisy trucks. Now when mm, seeing a couple directly, intuitively, seeing a couple of connections, causal connections like this in your sitting meditation, in your walking meditation, during your general activities, sooner or later you might discover that certain, well, events happen in a haphazard manner. Yes, they do or not? Do they? They don't. And so, you know, do you know, things, uh, formations arise because of some supreme being, some higher power? Uh, Lon? They do not. So there is no higher or uh, supreme being that is in control of our uh, lives. And certainly so, with this, understanding that arises out of our mindfulness practice, again, something shifts in the mind, and suddenly we realize that it, those same physical and mental formations are connected just by cause and effect. So a physical formation may arise because of some other physical formation, or it might arise because of a certain mental formation. So in the end there are just those four possible relations, a bodily object being the cause for another bodily object or result, and then a bodily formation being the cause for a mental result and then a mental object being the condition for a different mental object being the result and then a mental object being the condition for the arising of a physical object as a resultant. So with this Satya then the belief, the wrongful belief that formations arise by chance or through a hypothetical cause, this belief gets, or those two wrongful beliefs gets 
is uh, uh, or, or, yes, suppressed, suppressed or at least weakened. Now, when a meditator goes on with his or her meditation practice, with patience, with persistence, with a lot of good will, and also with confidence in, with a growing confidence in the practice, then sooner or later this meditator may realize that not only the objects in the external world, such as the weather here in Taos is changing day by day. Yesterday morning it snowed, then the sun was out in early afternoon, we had a hailstorm, and then it was sunny again, etc. So not only do changes occur in the outer world, but changes also occur in the inner world in the world of physical and mental formations that make up what we call a being. And so when one carefully observes formations, when one carefully observes certain form physical formations, mental formations, and certain formations as they are occurring at the different sense doors, then one realizes that all of those certain formations do undergo changes. So they're not resting you know, the same for you know, ever. And so they may change within a period of an hour. They might be changing within a period of, you know, let's say, just five minutes or you know, even in shorter periods, such as a minute or maybe even within just a few seconds or just a few moments. Now, when that particular understanding grows in a meditator, then it certainly leads to a major benefit. Namely, it helps a meditator to do what? To gain which benefit? So you're seeing the impermanence of formations. This helps you to Gain wisdom. Uh, well, you gain wisdom. Let go. Yeah. Pardon me? Let go. Let go of what? Anatta. When you're seeing you know, Anicca, you let go of Anatta. Let go of clinging. Let go of clinging to formations, yes. Clinging to self. Uh, clinging to self. Well, When you, when you see formations as being impermanent, then what does this do to your notion of permanence? Does it do, does it do anything to this or not? You let go. Ah, you let go of this particular perception. So, you know, the 
observation of the direct observation of, a, of the observation and certain understanding, knowledge of the impermanence of formations helps a meditator to abandon the wrongful perception of permanence under and which should so far we've been holding on to so strongly assuming assuming that certain the world is permanent that we are going to be young and healthy and strong for ever and uh, we're never going to fall sick we're never going to uh, die and uh, is this realistic obviously not and so um, seeing change in the outer world and certainly also seeing change within oneself on a level of physical and mental formations then very much helps a meditator you know, to abandon that wrongful perception of permanence and so um, that wrongful perception of permanence in turn you know, may you know, then uh, have an impact on you know, uh, on you know, the consciousness itself so if our perception keeps uh, you know, being one of objects are permanent then this will have an impact on consciousness so the consciousness then will be influenced by this and this in turn you know, this wrongful perception um, you know, will you know, then have an uh, impact on consciousness will then form and shape our you know, views so our views you know, then will be a uh, one of permanence. Now, seeing the impermanence of formations, all of this gets rectified. So this is called you know, abandoning wrongful you know, perceptions. And certain of the perversions of uh, of uh, perception, perversion of consciousness, chitta, perversion of perception is your sanya vipalasa, perversion of consciousness is chitta vipalasa and pani, and perversion of view is deity vipalasa in the pani scriptural language. Now. Directly, seeing that certain formations keep changing all the time, then automatically leads on to an understanding that formations are ultimately what? Sukha or Dukkha? Dukkha. Because, especially with pleasant experiences, we want to hold on to them. Or even with other formations, if we observe them really carefully, we want to see them for longer. We want to observe them for longer, and we can't because they keep changing all the time. So, and as outlined in an earlier Dhamma talk on Dukkha, on physical Dukkha, if change were not there, if formations were permanent, then we could take a shower just once and that would be it. We wouldn't have to do it over and over again. You will remember that particular part. And so 
So the fact that you know, that, you know, that we you know, we take a shower in the morning and then you know, the body is certainly clean, it doesn't mean that it's going to be clean forever. Sooner or later, we're going to sweat, and certainly then, and then we'll have to take yet another shower. So similar to you know, what applies in the case of you know, seeing impermanence also applies you know, to you know, the seeing of you know, the unsatisfactoriness of you know, formations and so you know, clearly seeing the unsatisfactoriness then brings you, you know, which benefit? There you go. It brings you the benefit of abandoning the perception of pleasure or satisfaction. So, and as human beings, we very much are under this particular perception, and we organize our lives in ways that we experience or that we maximize pleasure, delight, satisfaction. We maximize pleasure. And by always you know, you know, arranging for the next place and certain experience. And if we experience a little bit of dukkha, you know, then we'll try to get away from it as quickly as certainly possible. And certainly the human mind certainly has certainly, uh, developed many escape routes here. Now, as was also mentioned in an earlier Dhamma talk, dealing with dukkha, experiencing dukkha, unsatisfactoriness in one's life, has which two possible, or may lead to which two possibilities, in a larger sense. So, being exposed to great dukkha will lead you to. Yes, that's it indeed. So, you know, despairing over the suffering, and certainly then, and then not knowing how to handle it, and and then ending up being bewildered. And bewilderment is a form, is a synonym for delusion. And so it's either that, either bewilderment in the words of the Buddha, or it's search. So search, from a religious point of view, searching for alternatives, searching for and a way out of the suffering, out of the unsatisfactoriness. Now, searching for some alternative is certainly a benefit or not? It's a huge benefit. And this is probably why most of you are here. At some point in your lives, maybe just a recent past or Long, long ago, many years ago, you may have hit a point in your practice where dukkha was certainly quite intense, and this may have then triggered a search for alternatives. Now, 
when uh, once a meditator has intuitively understood that formations are mm, ultimately speaking not conducive to pleasure or happiness but rather conducive to suffering unsatisfactoriness then with this comes a gradual acceptance and acceptance of the fact and with this then one is more prepared to observe objects as they happen to accept the dukkha as dukkha and suddenly then this paves the way for an understanding of anatta the absence of self and so seeing this then helps you to abandon the perception of atta of self there you go and so and so among the you know, three you know, things, namely permanence, you know, the perception of permanence, perception of, uh, uh, of pleasure, and perception of self, it is the perception of self that is most difficult uh, to uh, let go of. And so, you know, so as human beings, tenaciously we hold on to this certain notion of a self. And if on occasion our sense of self gets threatened, let's say our personal views, wholly cherished views, get suddenly attacked or are being ridiculed, then we see this as an attack on our person. And suddenly, so that notion of a self is deeply ingrained in the, the human mind. And so this careful, mindful observation of formations then helps us to understand at least for a couple of moments here and there that ultimately speaking there is no self. There are just physical formations and mental formations occurring and that's all. And there's no, there's none of me doing the practice or controlling, manipulating the, the practice. So this suddenly then, you know, the under, you know, this understanding of non-self helps us to abandon the wrongful perception of a self, which is yet another big gain for meditators. It doesn't mean that that notion of a self is gone once and forever, but at least uh, it suddenly that notion gets weakened to some extent, and it will help you, you know, then later on to let go of it. It doesn't mean that you will never make use of the word I and my and mine anymore. <laughs> uh, but, just a but it means on an ultimate level you know okay, no, the self doesn't exist. On a conventional level, conceptual level you will still make use of personal pronouns such as I and possessive pronouns like my mine and so on. Yes? So how do we integrate the fact that we do, even though we don't have a self, we have character tendencies and traits and habits and kind of personality traits and those also come up and become more obvious in meditation. Sure. Even though you see that 
there's nothing permanent. I mean, how do you kind of resolve that? Well, in the course of you know, the meditation practice, our personality and traits and whatnot, you know, they also get certain shape to a certain extent. Uh, no. And so, let's say if you know, in a person there's a strong sense of self, well, that you know, then gradually gets you know, weakened. And, uh, or uh, one example, I'm not quite sure whether I've mentioned it in one of you know, the Dhamma talks. In the meditation practice, very much helps us to you know, see that ultimately speaking, there is no self, and so, um, and if earlier on we've been pretty egocentric in our personality, so it's me, 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 I'm in the center of the world. Uh, so that kind of uh, trade then gradually gets changed, gets shaped, reshaped. And so, uh, as we notice how mm, well uh, superfluous certainly the notion of a self is, you know, then we you know, become more uh, able to see others and to see their needs. And with that, our approach to others then changes drastically. And so, you know, then you know, we're moving away from an egocentric mm, position to a more you know, to, you know, to, position where others are uh, much more important. And that's a major change uh, uh, in uh, in one's trade or personality or however you want to call it. And, uh, and it's a gradual change. Now, it's not necessarily that this happens within just one single retreat, but you know, if a meditator keeps you know, doing daily practice and uh, an occasional you know, retreat here and there, you know, then gradually it happens. And so it's a gradual, you know, at first there, there will be a gradual change, and then it, or, or a small change, and then gradually it gets stronger and stronger. And that, you know, that then explains why you know, people you know, like you know, the Buddha, there was you know, the Buddha and you know, many of his disciples, and others, of course, how they managed to then live their lives in service for others. And going out there, the Buddha sometimes traveling enormous distances in order to meet up with a person who he felt was ready for liberation. Now, this much is already you know, not so bad, and so, you know, then you know, with you know, further you know, practice, you know, then a, a period um, evolves you know, during which you know, meditators are likely you know, to experience plenty of you know, wholesome mental states, and you know, those that we've discussed already in an earlier Dhamma talk, and they are known as the imperfections of you know, insight. Now, uh, when those imperfections of insight arise, such as illumination and certain keen knowledge, and what else? Do you remember? Faith in uh, no, Yes, for determined faith. Rapture. Rapture, yes, and? 
joy, yes, rapture, joy, ascent, tranquility, yes, equanimity comes later, yes, <laughs> and <laughs> happiness is also there somewhere in between, and so, uh, so yeah, joy, tranquility, happiness, faith, and so, yeah, then what about effort, effort goes down or up? <laughs> the energy goes up, and the mindfulness gets uh, really sharp, really strong, and certain equanimity then arises. And certain, the last one is nikanti, which is detachment and uh, unwholesome. So, with certain uh, the uh, or the arising of those um, mental states, let's say so the first nine. Do you think are there any benefits to uh, these? The rising of those nine benefits, is ben of nine no, no, imperfections, is beneficial or not? So you're saying yes. And why? Because they help move you forward on the path and also like the ability to interpret the Dhamma better obviously has benefits too. Yes, and so now they give a meditator a taste of what is possible through the development of the mind. So those imperfections show you forms of, let's say, happiness, joy, tranquility and happiness that so far you will have not experienced. And the Buddha refers to, especially those three, as certain Dhamma delight. And so, such an experience may make a huge difference in a meditator's life because he or she might find, well, in order to have certain good feelings, good emotions coming up, I'm not necessarily mm, limited to you know, going to the movies or uh, you know getting getting drunk or getting high or whatever it might certainly be. There are uh, within ourselves. Mm, or within ourselves uh, is a source for uh, some rather um, uh, encouraging, um, rewarding uh, mental states. So Dhamma delight that is not dependent on you know, the fulfillment of uh, external uh, or, or indulging in uh, sense pleasures. And also what happens with the arising of these imperfections of insight is, so there's an arising of happiness, inner, inner happiness, dhamma happiness, and with this one realizes one doesn't need all those many material things that one so far thought were essential for a happy life. And so even if one's life is lived in a rather simple way, yet there's contentment in the heart and that is certainly quite enough. So that may make a huge change or bring about a huge change in a person's life, which is another benefit that comes from the practice. And uh, I remember on one occasion we had a meditator in Lumbini, a meditator here from the States. Suddenly she was at the time a lawyer, 
and I forgot business lawyer or something. And Sapnashitna said, just because of her profession, she needed a wardrobe which was as um, as big. And the wardrobe was going from one end of the room to the other, just full of Fatna clothing hanging there. Every day something different to wear. And her meditation practice changed all of that. And suddenly she, I suppose, suddenly gave away most of her clothing. Now, if you think of the monastics, we don't have much to choose. <laughs> Every morning it's the same thing. Now, time is pressing as usual, so I'll try to shorten a little bit. Now, with a deepening of one's certain meditation practice, one one's, and having um, having overcome those imperfections, no longer you know, being a slave to them, you know, no longer you know, no longer being attached you know, to them, one the mind suddenly you know, then will become even you know, sharper. And suddenly then one will see how formations, physical and mental formations, arise and pass away in a very quick succession, a quick manner. So no longer that an object has arisen, that it suddenly disappears. An object arises and suddenly the next moment it's suddenly gone. Now, this particular phase in the practice usually goes along you know, with you know, much clarity of mind, many you know, positive you know, mental you know, states, and you know, this too you know, will show you, you know, the potential of the mind, how fast the mind actually can be. So previously, as a non-meditator or beginning meditator, you know, the, the mind was so sluggish. And uh, so slow on in working on different objects and uh, getting to know their true nature, and so uh, so all of these certain changes and certain then you get an idea of uh, what will be possible in the, in the future. So if you keep meditating, your mind will become even sharper than it is at this certain point. And who prefers a dull mind over a sharp mind? Is there anyone here? I suppose not. Now, as pointed out certainly already in one of uh, the earlier uh, Dhamma talks, uh, uh, a Dhamma talk on, uh, well, impermanence, and uh, especially <coughs> the destruction of formations, it was on uh, the first way of sharpening the controlling faculties. And so during that talk, it was uh, mentioned that seeing the arising of formations helps you to dispel which wrongful view? Mm -hmm. 
nihilism or an annihilation view. So the view that everything ends. With you know, the occurrence of death, everything ends, and you know, there is just uh, uh, nothing there. And since a meditator keeps seeing objects arising, 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 that certain wrongful view gets certainly refuted on the spot. Now, um, this knowledge is not just about seeing the arising formations, this knowledge is also about seeing the dissolution, the ending of formations. And you know, the immediate benefit of this is, in terms of a wrongful view, What's that? It dispels the view of permanence. Yes, there you go. And so, so it dispels the view of permanence, or to express it differently, uh, eternity. The eternity of view. And you know, so sometimes, you know, or some people are of you know, the opinion that, that formations last forever, and uh, even if physical death occurs, you know, you know, then some entity will pass on. And so upon clearly seeing how formations end, 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 then that eternity view gets suddenly dispelled. So once again, through our careful observation of you know, formations occurring, then certain changes take place and immediate benefits are there. Now, um, early on, Shamila, you said that seeing or experiencing this will, um, if, I'm, if I heard correctly, induce a person to continue with the practice. Was that what you said? Yeah. And that is indeed the case. So based on experiencing the imperfections of insight and also on based on seeing formations of rapidly arising and passing, one feels so encouraged in one's meditation practice. It's kind of like a high point, like reaching a peak on a long trek. And so, you know, then you, know, you feel, wow, this is really far out. This is you know, really you know, the best I've experienced so far. And so, you know, so it certainly you know, sure seems that uh, it's worth continuing with the practice. And so with this, you feel very much encouraged to move on in the practice. However, however, what? However, sooner or later, as you continue, you are likely also to run into much what? Dukkha. There you go. Now, the, uh, and I will shorten a little bit. So, um, maybe bef um, as part of, uh, uh, well, uh, the dukkha. With further, with a further deepening of our meditation, and um, 
and a deep understanding of uh, and very direct, very uh, uh, tangible understanding of the ending of remissions, the disintegration, dis uh, 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 dissolution, dis uh, destruction of uh, formations. With this, a number of benefits come, and. Mm, let us see what the Visuddhimagga has to say as, uh, or in this regard. Namely, it mentions eight advantages or benefits. The first one being you know, the abandoning of the false view of becoming or the eternity view. So that's also already on, you know, also covered by you know, the earlier insight knowledge. The second advantage is that of giving up attachment to life. So ordinarily we are tremendously attached to our own life. And this may become pretty clear if ever you are in a really dangerous situation. Let's say in a serious traffic accident or maybe someone is just about to attack you. And then this seeing, direct seeing of the ending of formations then will help a meditator to apply himself or herself in a more constant manner to the practice. So one wants to practice more. So there's a constant exertion of effort in meditation. Also, the text says, as a result of this, there will be a purification of one's livelihood. One will give up base and low forms of livelihood. So if in the past, one of your major interests was in, let's say, was gambling or playing the slot machines, then with some meditation practice, you might realize this is not really so important in life. And so this is not really going to bring any deep or meaningful answer to questions such as death and so on. And, so, and then the fifth benefit as attributed by or as mentioned by the Visuddhimagga is dispelling interest in big and small matters. So some issues, you know, we tend to we tend to clutter our minds uh, with you know, things that we think are important, but then when we're in deep meditation, we realize oh, all this bickering and uh, and quarreling here and there with this person and that person, etc., isn't really all that important. And we could live our life, or we could do you know, quite well you know, to let go of it. And so at this point, we're ready to let Satna go. Also, what Satna comes with this particular phase of the meditation practice is because we see formations as dissolving and including this sense of self weakening more and more. And so with this, some degree of absence of fear will be there. 
And then you know, there is a gaining, an, you know, the text say, an acquisition of patience and gentleness. So the practice brings you, you know, uh, brings you patience and certain gentleness. And you know, just to give you one example, now, many years ago we had a meditator, I think from South America, and uh, he just showed up at the center and it turned out he was a sailor. So, you know, you know working on ships and the ships traveling all over the globe. Now, being a sailor, I suppose, so, or the life of a sailor is not necessarily a very you know, gentle life. And certainly, so you know, this man, when he came, he was pretty you know, just straightforward in his uh, you know, language and down to earth and uh, you know, a little bit on the rough side, but you could tell you know, with a good certain heart. And so, and so in the course of the meditation practice, and he was at the center actually not that long, but by the end of his retreat, his certain ways, his manners had already smoothened and softened to some extent. So when you see that, when you see the difference between a meditator, when he or she comes to the center in terms of facial expression, in terms of physical and certain verbal behavior, and then you see a person you know, just before his or her departure, and suddenly there's much more refinement there, then you you really understand this is working. The practice is really bringing about certain deep changes. And so what the texts say in reality is actually happening. And then the eighth benefit as mentioned in the Visuddhi Bhaga is a meditator takes delight in a secluded forest monastery or meditation center and then wants to do meditation practice, be it samatha practice or vipassana practice. And then uh, there's also conquest of fitness and show delight. So just so, you know, to mention you know, this list of eight benefits, you know, because you know, uh, this list is given in uh, the Visuddhi Maga. Now, Early on, Catherine mentioned Dukkha. Yes, so the Dukkha comes again, and the Dukkha may be experienced in the form of seeing physical and mental formations as certain will contribute or as being a great source of misery. And at that point, you will not be that delighted, or you you will not be walking around with a big smile on your face. And the reason for it, this is that you've seen formations, you've seen basically the negative sides, you've seen the flaws of physical and mental formations to some extent, and with this, you're kind of like disappointed. So, uh, earlier on, 
on. You know, the assumption was that formations are permanent, you know, that they are conducive to you know, pleasure, happiness, that there is a sense of self, and this gets reinforced. And now you see you know, very directly there is no permanence, there is no you know, pleasure there, and you know, there is no permanent you know, self. So it comes like a big, uh, it's kind of like a big flop. <laughs> and so, and so, with this then, you think, my goodness, what uh, am I, or, you know, what am I here you know, for? And mm, what this particular phase of the practice does is, it abandons adherence to formations due to attachment. So we have a tendency to attach ourselves to you know, formations, and not even knowing this. And you know, so seeing the flaws of formations again and again and again, you know, then gradually meditators will kind of step back and be a bit less attached to formations. And when asking this question in interviews, when meditators aren't experiencing this particular point, then indeed they say, when the, the question is, do you feel more, a stronger adherence to formations due to attachment or uh, a lesser adherence? And usually the answer is, less adherence. And that very well matches with what suddenly happens suddenly later on. Now, I'll keep it really short. With a further exploration of physical and mental formations, one then develops a certain disenchantment with formations. And what this means is that meditators are no longer taking delight in formations. So if earlier on, at the very outset of our meditation practice, oh, here comes a new object, and then the mind jumps to this new object happily, oh, come on, let me see what's the, what is this object doing, and so wanting to you know, find out, getting all excited about it. Now, at this point, this is not the case anymore. And so, so there is a, a certain disgust with the formations. There's a certain one feels so repulsed by them. Now, as usual, there's a benefit to this. And the benefit is very simple, namely an abandoning of delight. And this delight being known in Pali as Nandi. Now, there's more to this particular aspect. Since, as human beings, we have this tremendous tendency to attach ourselves you know, to formations and to take delight in formations, therefore you know, we're suffering again and again, and you know, therefore it certainly is you know, so difficult you know, to you know, find uh, um, well to find a true you know, peace or you know, liberation, and. The major benefit at this point is the greater the repulsion, the greater the disenchantment with regard to, to you know, formations, the easier 
easier it will be to abandon formations. So it is as if, you know, it's kind of like this example of a rocket being launched into space. The rocket, when it takes off, has to overcome what? Gravity. Gravity. Gravitational forces. And in order to reach outer space, for human beings to reach uh, near the outer space of Nibbana, we need to overcome what? Attachment to formations. Attachment to formations. And that attachment to formations, especially at this point, breaks down quite a bit or gets certain, uh, weakened quite a bit. So it's not necessarily a pleasant experience, but in terms of gaining liberation or moving in that direction, it's very important. Now, with further you know, practice, you know, gradually meditators um, want certain you know, to um, or start looking you know, for alternatives. So, if you know, these physical and mental formations that we've been observing already for such a long time. And if they are flawed, essentially, fundamentally flawed, then there's something really wrong with them. So if something is wrong with them, then one doesn't want to hold on to them anymore. And one will start to look for something else. One will start to look for um, uh, maybe some um, escape, some escape route, some uh, <coughs> gate of uh, uh, liberation. And so this is what then happens next in one's satna practice. And that in itself is a major benefit. The mind starts to some extent looking in a different direction. Although at this point it doesn't yet quite know where to look and in which direction to go. Now, further you know, practice will you know, then um, bring an, an even closer um, well, uh, understanding of the three you know, universal characteristics of Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta, and eventually um, that meditators will experience um, the knowledge of equanimity about Satna formations and Satna some days ago. We talked about this. And the major benefit of this knowledge of equanimity is the purpose of attaining the path of stream entry and also the fruition of stream entry. Now, there are many other benefits that come along with this, such as the arising of plenty of wholesome mental states and equanimity, for instance, the gradual strengthening and 
uh, our strengthening of equanimity could be seen as a major benefit. So if if a meditator so far in his or her life hasn't experienced that much equanimity as yet, I mean, when one comes or when one directly experiences this knowledge of equanimity, then one gains access to some new ways of keeping the mind and also new ways of living. And it makes a huge difference whether you go through life with an extremely reactive mind and so aversive every now and then and so then all at other times longing for this wanting liking this or that so with the arising of this particular knowledge things suddenly these things change and the mind becomes very stable very strong very balanced now, this brings us suddenly to near the end, the end of our talk. The ultimate suddenly benefit of practice, obviously, is the realization of uh, near the peace of uh, nibana, uh, the peace of nibbana through you know, the path of stream entry, and suddenly may this happen uh, during the remaining days of this retreat. And this is it for now. Jim. <laughs> what would an evening of Dhamma talk be without a question from Jim? I know. <laughs> yes. I apologize. No, that's all right. Um, it's it's um, so so it stream entry is is abandonment. I see you describing it uh, based on conviction. Con- Conviction toward um, the world. The conviction that arises through the development of the maturation of my meditative practice toward formations in the world. Yes. And 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 so it's not moving toward; it's moving away. Uh, I'm letting go of. Well, Ayakema once has said, this whole practice is not about gaining something, but rather about letting go. And that nicely summarizes what the practice is about. There's no money back guarantee, is there? <laughs> well, n- 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 <laughs> what's that? Karma. Oh, karma. <laughs> yeah. So sooner, there's no guarantee there. 
And, uh, you just keep uh, you just keep doing your practice, and then sooner or later that letting go well, uh, takes place. It's an act of great courage, is what I'm trying to say. I mean, it's an act of great courage. Yeah, and sure. Great faith. Sure, that's uh, that is very much the case. Yeah. And you know, if you think of it. Um, if you think of a, of a person who decides for the first time to meditate and doesn't really know what this is all about and what, where it is going to lead the person, then actually it is, like you're saying, an act of great courage for a person to choose this path. I don't know, not realizing fully what is right <laughs> But in the end, but in the end, there is a happy end. <laughs> the movie ends well, is what you're saying. Yes, <laughs> it does. Thank you. Okay, so no, no, that's all right. You're, you're most welcome. So maybe this much for tonight, it's already 8.24, and... Uh, uh.